Listener Production. We all just want you to come home. That is, of course, Tim Minchin um, with his famous musical invitation for George Pell to come back and face court um, to face the allegations of sexual abuse, which he was convicted of and then later acquitted of after spending 13 months in prison in his late 70s. It's a complex story, the life of George Pell, and in this episode, we're going to learn all about his life and the failures that will define the legacy of Australia's most powerful Catholic ever. That interview with Miles Pattenden, a Catholic historian, in the second half of this episode. First, today's headlines with Rhiannon Patrick. It is Friday, January the 13th. The New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, has confessed that he wore a Nazi uniform at his 21st birthday party. When I was 21, at my 21st fancy dress party, uh, I wore a Nazi uniform. I'm deeply ashamed of what I did. Yeah, wow. I just cannot believe this story. So apparently he got a phone call from a colleague about this incident back in 2003 on Tuesday night. So the colleague calls. We don't know who it is from Perrottet's announcement. Uh, Then it's reported that the phone call came from one of his own, the Transport Minister in New South Wales, David Elliott. Now, it's still not clear whether there's a photo of Perrottet at his 21st birthday party in the Nazi uniform, but it was his 21st. So you got to think there's a photo. Um, he did speak to Jewish leaders before he made this announcement yesterday. He apologised unreservedly. They've actually come out and backed him, talking about his track record of supporting the Sydney Jewish community. So it's a crazy story, Anna. What do you make of it? It's a bit of a Prince Harry moment, isn't it? It is. And I guess it's one of those things where we were 21 once, mm. right, Tom? We've done some things. Our luck is that we did them at a time when there were no photos, um, but just I guess just for is... the record, though, I didn't wear a Nazi uniform on my 21st. No, I dressed as no, Robert, no. Robert Palmer. I didn't, I didn't have a 21st. Um, but no, but I mean, and I guess that's the thing is that, you know, um, for me, this is one of those things that you think, why? Why would you and why would you do that at your 21st? Because it's incredibly triggering to a group of people where that uniform means means death, you know, and I just, yeah, I just, I just don't know why this keeps happening. But also at a time when there were cameras, I mean, cameras were invented when this happened. Um, mm. It just, it, I, I just, it just defies belief for me that this is still a thing, right? Well, it's, um, but this is, you know, twenty years ago, so it's not really still a thing, right? It's something he did twenty years ago, and and I don't think this would necessarily normally derail his leadership. He's come out and owned it. He's got on the front foot eventually. Um, He's talked to the Jewish community, they backed him. But I think the big problem for his future will be that this is just two months out from the election in New South Wales and someone from his own party is tearing him down. So it speaks to a horrific culture um, within that party, not really the sort of people you want governing your state. And I guess that's what voters will have to think about. And neither New South Wales or Victoria will be holding a state funeral for Cardinal George Pell. There will be no memorial service or state funeral because I think that would be a deeply, deeply distressing thing for every victim survivor 
of Catholic Church child sexual abuse. Victorian Premier Dan Andrews not mucking around there. Um, it's interesting, Rihanna. I was wondering how the politicians were going to play this. Um, as Dan Andrews said, a state funeral would have been very controversial and hurtful for victims. So I think this is the right call. And the people that still love George Pell, um, you know, devout Catholics, will still get a service in Sydney where he's going to um, eventually be interned. And he'll also have a service in St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican on Saturday, which will be presided over by Pope Francis. Yeah, and no doubt the Australian ambassador to the Holy See, which is the government of the Catholic Church, will also be in attendance, I'm assuming. Australia and Papua New Guinea have agreed to sign off on a new security treaty by June. That includes a whole range of issues which are security issues. Cyber security, domestic security and policing arrangements. The issue of climate change is also a security issue. PM Anthony Albanese in Port Mosby there and in a statement, Australia and PNG have flagged that they'll expand training and explore possible joint exercises as well as share information more regularly on strategic threats and challenges. Yeah, it was interesting to note that the Papua New Guinea Prime Minister, James Marape, he brushed off questions about whether this treaty with, with us would stop them from signing a similar one with China. Um, and he said, at no instance was China or any other nation brought into the picture. What do you make of this story? You're from Torres Strait, so obviously, uh, you know, it's an important relationship. Yeah, incredibly important. And I guess, I mean, that China question is kind of interesting because there has been um, some news coming out that China has been looking at maybe some fishery developments, particularly on Daru, which is quite close to the international border of PNG and Australia. Um, you know, and, and Australia has a very interesting place in all of this because the Torres Strait Treaty, um, which allows sort of traditional activity like fishing um, and trade between Papua New Guinea and the Torres Strait um, is something that we've looked after for, 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 you know, for a long time here. And it's quite important to biosecurity. So I think, you know, the fact that China is looking at some possibilities in PNG means that possibly this agreement is coming at a good time. And 17 Australians will play in the Australian Open, um, which kicks off on Monday. Um, Nick Kyrgios and Tanasi Kokonakis are both in the bottom half of the draw, so um, they've got some tough opponents. Kyrgios could meet uh, Djokovic in the quarterfinals. They'll also be playing in a sold-out exhibition match tonight. Isla Tomjanovic, um, our best women's hope, has also hit a tough draw. She'll face off with one of the only two active former champions of the Australian Open in just the second round. And we found out why Naomi Osaka won't be playing. She's having a baby, um, but she says she'll be back at the Australian Open next year. Um, are you getting excited about the start of the Australian Open, Rihanna? Look, I, I've never been able to understand tennis. I'm one of those people. <laughs> My grandfather used to watch it all the time. I've spent a lot of summers watching tennis, but never really understanding the game. Well, you hit the ball over the net. <laughs> yeah, apparently. But, you know, I, I, do, I do dip into it. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, there's some interesting drama, especially uh, in the men's draw with Djokovic trying to make the comeback after such a dramatic year last year. Um, yeah, kicks off Monday. Look forward to it. Um, Rana, we'll catch you next week. Now for our interview on the very complicated life of George Pell, who died this week, aged 81. He had a heart failure after undergoing hip surgery in Rome, which is where he was living again after leaving prison here in Australia. 
Miles Patton is a historian at the Australian Catholic University. Miles, thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to start this interview by just acknowledging that it it actually feels very difficult to talk about George Pell's life because of the the weight of pain that comes with his legacy from the victims of sexual abuse, but you also have to weigh that up against his incredible achievements within the Catholic Church, becoming Australia's most senior Catholic ever. Do you find it hard to talk about him as well? Yes, I I do also find it hard to talk about Cardinal Pell for the reasons that you've just described. I came to Australia about four years ago. One of the things that has always struck me ever since then is just the, the strength of the emotional responses which mentioning Cardinal Pell's name elicits uh, both amongst his admirers and amongst his detractors. I've never known anything quite like it in my study of uh, the Catholic Church. And I said two weeks ago when Pope Benedict died that there was this mixed legacy around him and, and divergent views, but uh, the, the views of Cardinal Pell are much more intense even than they were about the former Pope. All right, well, let's step through his life. He's often known as the boy from Ballarat. What do you know about the way he grew up and were there there any early signs of the big future that lay ahead of him? It's always difficult as a historian to unpack the reality from the legend which emerges around a figure like Pell. We know that he, he had a fairly normal country boy upbringing. He had some health difficulties as a child. He seems to have channeled that into an interest in physical pursuits. He was a boxer. He played a lot of AFL. In fact, he was extremely good at both those things and signed for Richmond in 1959. And then he decided uh, that actually his vocation lay with God and, and not with sport. But then when he was in the Australian church, he was quickly noticed by his superiors for what were a formidable set of talents. He was a fiercely intelligent man, and that comes across uh, in all his interviews and all his writings. But also, and this is, I think, the crucial skill which he had, that he wasn't afraid to identify problems, to confront them, and to propose and implement solutions to them, even if that meant treading on people's toes and sort of forcing them out of the way. And actually, he had the charisma and the energy to do that. And that is the key to his success as a career politician within the Catholic Church. So he rose to become the Archbishop of Melbourne and then Sydney, and then eventually he was appointed to the first prefect for the economy of the Holy See, which is essentially the the treasurer of the Catholic Church in the Vatican. Um, It's seen as the third most senior position in the Vatican. Um, This started in 2014 and went through to 2019. How did he get to such a high position? Was it his own personal drive and ambition that got him there? I think to a very large extent it, it was. And a lot of it came down to the fact that, unlike other people, he was willing to Um, not just to promote himself, but to confront the issues that faced the church and to propose solutions to them. Those solutions didn't always work, but they did give a confidence in him to his superiors. Once he'd become the Archbishop of Sydney, then it was always likely that he would receive a, a cardinal's hat in Rome. The crucial decision came when Pope Francis invited him to take on a senior role in the Vatican as the um, the prefect for the economy is, is second or third only below the Pope and the Secretary of State in the ranking hierarchy there. And I think what Pope Francis recognised in, in Pell was, on the one hand, this outsider's perspective, like Francis, Pell was not implicated in that nexus of vested interests, which we all know uh, dominates the, the Vatican and its politics. But also he had a very sharp 
legal brain. He had a, a kind of Anglo-Saxon mentality about how things should be organized and ordered. Um, he'd successfully run two of the, the Catholic world's biggest dioceses. And so even though Francis and Pell were by no means ideological bedfellows in terms of Catholic teaching, Francis uh, thought that he was the man uh, to bring into Rome. And he seems to have achieved some success in that role until he was called back to Australia. Yeah, well, soon after he got there, the big bombshells started to drop. We'll get to the charges against him personally in a moment, but there was also the findings of the Royal Commission. So you said before that he was willing to confront problems in the church, but the Royal Commission found that he made some massive mistakes in dealing with pedophile priests in the church, notably Jared Ridsdale, Peter Searson, Edward Dowlin. So what were the big mistakes that Pell made in failing to deal with these pedophiles properly? Pell was willing to confront some problems in the church, such as declining turnout amongst the faithful, but not other problems, such as the prevalence of of pedophile priests in his diocese and the culture of secrecy, which allowed their crimes to go unnoticed for a very long period. In assessing Pell's legacy on this area, I think it's important to remember and to recognize that his attitudes and his actions were not atypical of senior clerics of his generation, the generation before. In many ways, Pell did represent a certain amount of progress on other uh, archbishops in similar situations, particularly in the United States, where uh, similar kinds of crimes had come to light in the 1980s and earlier 1990s. Pell's Melbourne response was an improvement on responses in other jurisdictions, but Pell was always slightly behind the curve on this in that he never went as far as public opinion or victim survivors needed. And he never really showed sufficient empathy, I think, with Mm. uh, the victims. He often would make remarks in which he appeared to be acknowledging their pain and the difficulty of the situation. But then there'd always be a but. Mm. And he would go on and defend the church. The problem with that was uh, sometimes he had a reasonable point but it was presentational and it it meant that people gradually lost confidence. They lost belief in the sense that he was really on top of the problem and that he really understood how serious an issue it was. Mars, do you think if he if he had got his response right, if he had taken a stronger stance against those pedophiles, he could have prevented lots of further incidents of abuse? Well, we'll never know how many further incidences of abuse Pell could have prevented if he'd taken a stronger stance. The basic problem is, in a sense, one of hubris. He'd succeeded in building himself such an extraordinary career because he lacked self-doubt on all kinds of issues. He knew what he believed, and he followed his convictions. And that worked right up until the moment in which it proved to be a grave mistake because he underestimated the seriousness of the charges that were being made against the Australian church. Uh, And he didn't have the uh, self-reflective mechanisms within him to correct course until it was much too late. It may be that the measures that the church put in place in the 1990s under Pell and more recently are now in fact uh, safeguarding children in a much more robust way than in the past. But it'd be very difficult for people to know that because in a sense, the test comes when there is a another problem and we all hope that that won't happen. Mm. I feel like now we're starting to get an insight into the personality here. You're saying there he lacked self-doubt. He had a lot of personal conviction It sounds like that was what allowed him to take on people in the Catholic Church, but potentially meant that he didn't have the empathy he needed in certain very important situations, in particular 
the way victims I were treated. So. I, I think so. And I, in one of his final interviews, I recall him speaking and, and, and saying that, you know, his job as as a pastoral leader in the church, wasn't to reach compromises and to appease uh, his opponents and, and, and those who disagreed with Catholic teaching. It was to provide succor to the faithful and, if anything, to try and increase their number. And the way to do that was to defend uh, and explain the positions on, on morality and on, on theology that, that he espoused. And in a sense, that was the same problem that, uh, that he manifested here over clerical mm-hmm. sexual abuse. He, he knew what was right, and he just kept pushing that without any feedback mechanism to check on how people were receiving it and what the wider consequences of that might be. So when the charges against Pell himself were finally laid in 2017, it was an extremely dramatic moment in Australian history because he was already working in the Vatican. So he had to come home. After a long court process, he was found guilty, served 13 months. There was a Victorian Supreme Court appeal, which failed, and then a High Court appeal, which was successful. So how did the Victorian courts come to such a different conclusion to the High Court, which was unanimous? I can't speak to the the legal specificities of this case. And of course, I wasn't in Australia for all of the duration of it. But the High Court was extremely critical of the Victorian courts, uh, largely because of the justice's view there that the, the Victorian court should have directed the jury that there was insufficient evidence. And there were certainly plenty of people who, who tried to speak publicly insofar as that was allowed during the trial process to say that the, the evidence was very circumstantial. But the Cardinal's reputation was completely destroyed by this process. It was the most sensational trial in modern Australian uh, history. A lot of what was said about Cardinal Pell probably was very unfair during that time. He was lampooned in all kinds of ways. There's a a very well-known song by um, Tim Minchin Mm. telling him to come home and face the music and calling him a coward. I suspect that uh, the court of public opinion had already formed its mind on, on him by that point. Yeah, but I guess the court of public opinion took the the concerns of sexual assault victims a lot more seriously than the Catholic Church and perhaps as the, the most senior member of it in Australia, Pell, that, that, Pell wore, wore that and possibly yeah, that, rightly so. Yes, that's, that's right. I think there was a lot of very genuine rage amongst the Australian public towards the Catholic Church for its very arrogant as well as careless attitude towards the rights of victim survivors. And of course, that was focused on Pell. They needed someone to blame. And in a sense, the the accusations against him were too good to be true. And a lot of people believed them. A lot of people may have had some doubts, but wanted to believe them and even felt a sense of schadenfreude uh, that, you know, this was what Pell deserved. Mm. Um, And he underwent, you know, a very difficult and uh, trying period, including 13 months in prison. But people still feel that he had questions to answer over his wider actions and responsibility Mm. for the culture of secrecy around priests in Australia. And that has always colored opinions about him ever since. So he was a very conservative Catholic, railed against same-sex marriage, contraception, abortion. So now that he's gone, do you think the Australian Catholic Church might go in a more progressive direction? 
Well, it's possible that it will, but the forces of, of conservatism in the Australian Catholic Church are still there. There are still many conservative Catholics here and people who believe that this is a, a fixed set of orthodox beliefs which the church must adhere to. Otherwise, it's not really the church. And that line of thought is is quite pervasive amongst certain groups of Catholics who, of course, they've lost two of their major figureheads in the past two weeks with Pope Benedict and now with Cardinal Pell, but they're unlikely to change their views soon. So it's not clear how they will be reconciled with those who take a more liberal view or how that will all play out over the next few years. Great to speak to you, Miles. Thank you so much. Thank you. Listener.